Welcome to another episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. I'm Donald Dennis, and you can find me on the wilds of the internet as Walsfio. And, of course, you can find out more about the people who create this show and all the other Inverse Genius podcasts over at InverseGenius.com. Today, I'm here with Chris Bell. Hello! Who's my cohort over here at the Polly's Island Library in South Carolina. And we've got a lot of stuff going on. It's that time of year again. What's going on, Chris? Shushcon! Shushcon, 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 yep. So you might have heard uh, us talk about it on previous episodes. March 22nd through 24th, we are doing Shushcon. So it's just about t- less than two months away at this point. Yes, it is. And as you librarians may or may not know, and teachers as well, the first half of that Friday, the 22nd of March, we do a, a, a sort of a training day on games in the library. And this time we're going to be talking about story games. And so that's going to be role-playing games, board games that utilize story, uh, as well as maybe some LARPing, if we can get someone who does some LARPing or cosplay in to talk about that kind of stuff. But mostly we want to help support story time or other story-oriented activities through games. Yes, we want to show off how those can be used in the library or in a classroom, honestly, to uh, really engage the kids, get them uh, wanting to play the games with you. So some of the games we'll have and talk about and teach people how to play include Hero Kids, uh, My Little Pony Tales of Equestria, No Thank You Evil, Adventure Maximus, and those, those are all on the role-playing game front. And something that's kind of in the middle is Untold Adventures Await, which we hope to have a big deal about. And um, and some board games that uh, that really sort of hit the touchstones of story or utilize books in some way. That's right. We've talked about Fiasco a lot on the podcast, so we will also be showing that off. And uh, what other big role-playing games will we be hitting? So also some of the bigger role-playing games, things like Feng Shui, D&D, Fate, um, and Fate Accelerated. Um, so some meteor role play games uh, that are still easy uh, to access and easy to run. Right, and that have some organized play support. So like Pathfinder, which has the Pathfinder Absolutely. Society. So we'll cover those on the show if we haven't, and we will probably cover them on the show even if we have. But we will certainly talk about them at the con. And our hope is that you know we do a very short amount of talking up front, and then get teachers, librarians, whomever else shows up to sort of move over to whatever they are going to find useful. And some of our local GMs are going to be helping us and it should be pretty darn exciting. So it'll be very fun. What else? What else has been going on? ShushCon related. We've been doing a lot of terrain making stuff, mostly with Gaslands, which um, we talked about previously. Yes. Uh, we have been mutilating cars into very fancy wrecks, um, or just making giant walls with them. Right, right, right. And in fact, one of the things that we're doing is that the weekend after this drops, on the uh, Saturday or Sunday the 3rd at 1 p.m., we're going to have a terrain-making workshop here locally. So if you are sort of in or along the Grand Strain and want to come see what we're doing, meet us up at Myrtle Beach Games here in, uh, well, along Myrtle Beach, strangely enough, and join us to do some terrain-making. That should be a lot of fun. We're going to teach some basics. We're going to show off the tools that we have. The fine folks over at the Hotwire Foam Factory have you know, given us some tools. The, the workshops are free. The convention is free. All of this is free, free, free. Yes. 
All we need is your passion. Come and join us. Right. So uh, enough about this weekend. We are, however, using terrain making, sort of model making, that kind of stuff as our arts and crafts projects that we've been doing in the team room lately. Previously, when Stephanie was here, we did a bit of painting, some cartooning, all kinds of art. And at this point, we have sort of moved now on to uh, 3D art. Though, of course, when it gets around to Inktober and stuff, we'll still be doing yes. our line drawings and all of that. Yes, we won't be completely abandoning the 2D spectrum, but uh, right now we're all 3D, 3D, 3D. Oh, in February, I'm going to try and resurrect the idea of a daily dungeon, which will be art, but art in the form of making dungeons for Dungeons and Dragons and that kind of thing. Yes. We'll see if that happens. It's a busy month already. <laughs> it very much is. Uh, speaking of 3D things, though, mm-hmm. one thing that has helped us tremendously with our 3D model making is our brand new 3D printer. Which has also given us more headaches than than yeah. anything. And really, at this point, I think it's neutral. It has slowed us down as much as it has sped us up. That's probably true, but that's mostly due to our incompetence in using it. Mm. And not so much the printer itself. I would say that, uh, that our beautiful TAS-6 <laughs> printer... When we had the dual heads on it and it broke, that was not our fault. Okay, that's fair. But, but since then, I think we've had environmental issues as much as possible because if your climate control at your school or library is as bad as our climate control in ours, um, it will be fine and nice and warm, and then it will go to freezing, and then the prints will start messing up. Yes. That is an unfortunate thing. So we're trying to get that straightened out. Hopefully before Shushkan, um, and otherwise we're having to tactically plan. Oh, we have enough time. We think before the temperature is going to shift to get this printer print to get this three D print printed. Though it is giving us the opportunity to make fancy little gizmos and gadgets for archery and making stuff. Um, you don't necessarily need it, but it does add a little bit of flair uh, where there wouldn't be some otherwise. And also, we are in the process of crafting our cryptics, which. Yes. We may have mentioned before on the show, I don't think so, but it is a neat, like the, uh, what is it, the Da Vinci Code, yes. where you have the tube that you can spin the dials on, pop things out, and congratulations, you have created yourself a uh, puzzle, or a puzzle box that they need to get the combination on, and it can go from four digits all the way up to ten digits, I believe it can go up to 16 for the version we got. Oh, can it? Yeah, okay. I, I hadn't explored the greater depths of this. Uh, for those who are interested, Stephanie is creating for Shushkan an escape room that will utilize one, and you'll get to come and see how that works. So we'll see. Yes, more information when we actually know what she's doing. Indeed. Oh, speaking of escape rooms and conventions, previously... I believe Stephanie and I talked about The Lost Mummy from Lock, Paper, Scissors, which is a print-and-play sort of escape room company. And they also have an escape room Z. We had taken both of those escape rooms and sort of given them a, hey, here's new props and you know better constructed elements instead of just having made them out of paper. But we used all the stuff that they gave us to sort of put us in that right direction. Yes, we uh, fancied them up quite a bit, um, gave them a lot more of a 3D element and not just the uh, paper. Right, so we printed them on cardstock or we put them on foam core to give them a little more durability. 
And then we took them to Scarab where they ran them for us. We, we only had to run them a few times. <laughs> Didn't yes. have to sit there doing it the whole time. But it was, it was kind of neat to see that three of our rooms, one that I had created and the two that were created by a lock, paper, scissors, and then kitted out by Chris and I, I guess blinged out is probably a better way of putting it. Probably. That, uh, that it was neat to see them get so much excitement and so much play. Now, I guess it's review time. Let's, let's review not the one I made, because, of course, it is perfect in all things, except Absolutely. for where it's not, uh, <laughs> and, and talk instead about their two things. You've now had experience with both yes. the Lost Mummy and the Escape Room Z. What did you think of the Lost Mummy, first of all? So, I think the Lost Mummy um, is a very strong escape room. Um, as it's laid out, you do need to basically have a GM running the room for when the people get the answers. Um, we added some lock boxes to ours so that uh, they could put in the codes themselves when they found the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, though we do have one puzzle that I uh, still don't agree with because the answer is two digits. It's, it's not. It's only two digits when the way you do it. <laughs> Everybody else gets it the other way. Uh, yeah. So, and actually, this is this is important. When you yes. are playing Escape Room, it's very important to get people to play test it because yes. uh, Chris will see the answer in one way, I will see it in the other, and then we have to field it out to our folks to play test it and see what they think. Absolutely. And I am mostly joking when I say I don't agree with the puzzle. Um, I, it's still in my mind. It doesn't make sense the way that other people see it, but as we've play tested it. I'd say 95% of the time people understand it that way and don't understand it the way I'm thinking. I think more, more importantly is not whether they see it that way or don't. The issue is, is that if they get it, Chris's, if they get to the answer of a particular puzzle, the way Chris sees it first, then they still have what is a second obvious number that they can put in. Yes. If they instead do it in the reverse order where it's sort of the way that I see it, as being, oh, it's these four digits, they go into the lock, and, and you have the answer there, and they don't get it, then it is not obvious how to put in yeah, the correct answer. So almost a step backwards, which makes it difficult. It is. It, 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 rolls, it rolls it back in a, in a weird way. So if you've got a GM there, you can say, oh, yes, you have the right answer, and this is the correct thing. But when you're having people put stuff in the locks for the absolute answer, it's a little more awkward if you have the uh, person who's running the game step in and say, no, no, uh, you have the right answer, but you need to put it in this other way. It pulls them out of the immersion where the other way, if you've already got an active GM, it's not so much. They can say, yes, Yes. you have it. And here's the next thing. Um, But again, that is, I believe a very strong uh, puzzle. I think we haven't had people fail it though. It does typically take people, I'd say fastest, you know, a team's going to take half an hour. Uh, most people closer to an hour. And there is the skill levels required for the puzzle are wide and varied. Yes. And I mean, some of the puzzles are quite difficult um, and can stump quite a few people. It feels like um, the lost mummy is sort of an early, a relatively early design put together by some very clever people. Right. And then I think yeah. as they go on, they will continue to make better and better. And I hope they do. I yes. really hope that they put out another 15 or 20 of these because we will get them each and print them on. Now this one they sent us 
and the next one we talk about they sent us but we are looking at purchasing the other ones that they have there on their site yes and 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 doctoring them up so that was the lost mummy let's talk for a moment oh how would you rate that uh, from uh, from green to yellow to red um i'd probably rate that as a green uh that's a very good one for groups of people to run through um they say their puzzles can be modified though that one has quite a few elements that make it difficult to expand on mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but it is great for a five six player run oh really because i would say that it's no more than 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 four tops but mm-hmm. three is an ideal number of people to play it because it, there's such a narrow chain that is true um but you know if you've got a group that works really well together um then then five would work i think you know so i i don't know and and if you we get to the zombie room right now so if we move over to these oh i'm going to say for me it's a yellow light um it, it can be played well and it can be done but i think that that it still sort of feels like it needs a little bit of help and and i think we did that by by doctoring it up a little bit and all that required was some stick glue and some foam core and it's true understand my rating may be skewed because i've only ever seen the puzzle in the upgraded version and the upgraded version right right perfect makes perfect sense and no i mean i could say it's still a green a green light game i can see where you would say that i wasn't judging your your rating i just think it's probably better for fewer players but if you have players who don't all get the thing and then they don't know how to solve a puzzle then then it would be pretty tough so let's move to escape room z now the whole premise of escape room z is instead of hey you've fallen into a hole and you're trying to to get out is that you are at a place where um, you're surrounded by zombies. You are trying to, and uh, and I I don't know. I'm not exactly quoting. You are trying to get a weapon, unlock the oven to get your pizza, and unlock the door so that you can get out. Then there's a zombie fight, and then and then it's over. Yes, and those are the puzzles. <laughs> yes, there are, I believe, three puzzles total for that escape room. Right. And, wow, um, for me, this is a yellow light at best. I would have to agree. Um, though that is saying in its current form. Um, the one major positive to this uh, escape room, it lends itself very easily to being upgraded or modified. Right. So we're going to give some spoilers here. Um, we kind of already did. But uh, so for Escape Room Z, uh, it helps if you have Nerf guns on hand. Yes. Um, it also helps uh, if you can create an oven that you can lock or if you've got something like that. Well, we uh, we ended up having to have a, a self-monitoring lock. It's like, hey, when you have done this and put these the dials in on these positions, then you can open up the oven. Um I'll post the pictures. Chris and I uh, came up with some fun solutions to make the game feel a bit more engaging, I think. Yes. But um, and I, I think with more time and more expertise, uh, you could definitely get the room to a point where uh, all the locks are automatic. Mm-hmm. Though it would take a bit of technical know-how for one of the puzzles. Right. So one of the puzzles is insanely difficult and makes no sense whatsoever. Even when I knew the answer, 
And we're just going to go, we're going to go through the puzzles really quick here. So one of them is neat. You find little switches or dials around the room. You have to orient them in the correct way. And when you've got all four of them put together on where they go, and then you, then you put them in the, in the right direction. And there's a couple of hints in the room that will tell you what goes where that works pretty neat. Um, the young kids enjoyed playing with that. It was physically manipulatable. It worked well. You could make a physical version of the puzzle, one that actually did the locking and unlocking. That would take some expertise. You could do what we did, which is just to uh, make it out of foam core and say, oh, look, you've got it right. They told us and we're like, oh, yes, and the the oven door opens. Um, And the good thing about that puzzle is it's very obvious that you have it right once you do. Right, and it's and it's obvious that the kinds of things you need to do when you play with it. So I would have to say that is my favorite puzzle. Actually, that is the only puzzle I like out of the entire game. All right? It is the strongest puzzle. It is strong. I mean, it's not difficult, but if you're playing with kids or, you know, even adults who like physical things to manipulate, it it works pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, The next puzzle is one of the pictures is of three zombies, and of the photo page that's up on the wall – it has that same picture of zombies, but one of them is missing, which basically tells you, because of one of the other clues, cut out what is missing. So it is a destructible puzzle. So you have to print out multiple things every time for this game. Another yes. thing, I think, which makes it less suitable. The more I think about it, this is a red light game for libraries and schools. Yes. Um, the other issue with that particular puzzle, as you are physically cutting out the object, um, when you are printing it, you better have your scale right. Um, and when the person who is cutting it out does that, they need to cut it out quite precisely. And so you take the little zombie that you've cut out, you're going to slap it on a sprite thing, which looks like either a sprite box or maybe a label for a sprite can. I don't even know which. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you could do it either way. We didn't do either, but now we're thinking if we're going to run this game again, that's what we'll do. Yes. Um, and then the words around that zombie or the letters around that zombie spell out something that you have to go onto a website, enter that word in, and it tells you whether you succeeded or not. Yes. Or the GM can say, yes, you got the right thing, continue. That's correct. And that is a situation where a very long cryptarch might help. Uh, one that has enough letters to fit that answer. Though that would have to be a long one. It is about 10 to 15 letters long. Yes, that actually, that would work. So you could have them put that into the cryptics. So that's pretty neat. Um, that gets you the gun? Or no, that gets you the door code. Yeah, that opens the door. Yes, oh no, that's the one that opens the door. Um, and then the third puzzle is uh, you find there's a picture of a, a base jumping kit in it. There is a postcard. So you flip that one up and behind it there's a postcard. Under the postcard or on the postcard, somebody has written things. So there's a third picture. And on that, it talks about um, there's a bunch of gobbledygook, words that are out of order. Yes. Which can be reassembled in order in several ways and make just as much sense. That is unfortunately true. And the final answer includes a word that should not be in there. Um, It fits, but it kind of throws the puzzle off. Brains? Brains. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And even once you've assembled the phrasing, um, that's still not the end of the puzzle. You need to basically turn the words into numbers. Um, when when they, possible, yes. Because yes, there's two and two, like, there's one, 
you the, ate the number one. pizza, so the number is eight, or you went to the park, and the number is two, uh, which is not immediately obvious. Making that puzzle incredibly difficult because you need to put it in the right order, then you need to figure out you need to make numbers, and it's hard to tell if you've done it right at all. Um, I'm going to give this my least favorite puzzle award for the room. Yes. Sadly, those are the only puzzles. Now, so once you've got all of that done, um, you've got all three of the things. You've got your Nerf gun or your bo- your rocks or whatever it is because they say, hey, you can just use balled up paper. Um, you then say, all right, these zombies are now between you and the edge of the thing. So you have to knock down all the zombies. And all the zombies have points on them. So what we do is we make folks take alternate turns and and take a shot with the youngest kid starting first. Yes. And then we, once they've killed all of the zombies, they, uh, they then win the game. Hooray. Yes. And that's cute. That is, I think the thing that makes the people like the room the most is that it turns yes. into a shooting gallery and then they get to compare the point value of all the things. And it does help that that is the final thing you do in the room. So it kind of leaves a good final impression Um, And they kind of forget the obvious frustrations they were having, especially towards the beginning of the puzzle. Right. So of the four elements of the room, two of them were kind of neat. Yes. Two of them. Well, one of them was, I think, just poorly executed. And the other was horrible. Yes. So that is the Escape Room Z. Now, on the other hand, I think that it is the basis for a good idea that if you bought it, you could utilize the parts. You could make a neat little room of it. We're going to add another couple puzzles to it. And maybe rejigger one of the puzzles so that it yeah. works a little bit better. Again, um, as I said, it is very suited to being modified, upgraded, or twisted however you need. Right. And so um, for that, I have to give it a green light. But just for the way it plays right out of the box, red light. Yes. I agree. So that is Escape Room Z from Lock, Paper, Scissors. Boo. Yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about what happened at Scarab. We went to advertise our event and ran a bunch of games there and handed out bookmarks because library. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and buttons because, well, we have a button maker, so why not? And it was pretty exciting. We cannot wait to uh, to see how many of those folks. Uh, uh, what was your experience? this Last year, uh, Stephanie, Ben, and I went and we did a hard push for ShushCon. And, and I had gone the year before. And and also advertise ShushCon. But what was your experience as a first-time member or attendee at Scarab? Um, well, I had a lot of fun. So uh, when I went, I ran a lot of stuff myself. Um, I'd say the majority of my time there was running games. Um, and quite often, I had some very fun games, very fun players. It's a lot of people who really enjoy role-playing games, um... And I assume minis, even though that didn't make as well as it should have. They had some issues with their miniatures games, but it's not our con and it wasn't our bag. So we're not going to talk about that, I don't think. Uh, But no, it was a lot of fun. Uh, One issue I kept having uh, is every time I tried to advertise something, Donald had already got to them. (laughs) Um, So I didn't manage to advertise ShushCon to as many people. But no, I think it really helped because you bring it up. It's like, hey, we're doing this. And first of all, you're another GM that some of these folks haven't experienced before. Yes. So that helps that, hey, another GM is talking about it. And also, if 
three of the people go, oh, yeah, ShushCon, I've heard about it. The other two haven't. They're like, oh, wait a minute, I should know more. Yes. So I think that may even be more valuable, you coming at. And if it's me, every time, every year being the only voice, that's not as good. That's true. But if it's got you, especially since you are an award-winning GM. Absolutely. That, hooray, you've, you've got that. And people have fun in your games. So that's another reason to say, hey, by the way, as you're leaving the table, please don't forget ShushCon. Correct. Yeah. So um, One glorious thing that I did have happen to me while I was there, um, I enjoyed running a RPG called Dread, which uses a Jenga tower. Yes, we've talked about it previously on the show, yes. but for new listeners, let them know what Dread is. Uh, so Dread is just uh, every time the players, it's a very story-driven game, um, not a lot of mechanics or almost none at all. Uh, whenever the players go to do something, they pull from the tower to make it work. Uh, sometimes they just need to pull one. Sometimes if they're trying to pull information, you might say pull two to four, and then they get to decide when to stop, and that controls how good their information is. Or things like that. Um, they just keep pulling. Problem is, when the tower falls, someone dies. Yeah. Um, it I definitely lives up to the name of dread as you get into it. And, and, and killing someone off is sometimes difficult. It's like, oh, they're just talking to this guy. They're not in a dangerous point right yes. this second. How do I kill them off? And so you have to delay that for a few minutes before they're dead. They don't die necessarily yes. that second, but it's like, oh, you know that you're gone soon. As soon as something stressful happens, before the next person pulls, you're goner. Yes. Um, and the great thing that happened with me with this game at the con was uh, I ran it once, and it was with some people who have experience playing with Dread, and so they wanted to try it again with a new GM. While I was playing it, um, a lot of people kept seeing this game and trying to figure out what was going on. The next day that I ran the game, I had an entire group of people that wanted to play just because there was a Jenga tower. They'd never heard mm. of it. They'd never done it. They didn't know what it was, but it looked neat. So some games advertise themselves yes. pretty easily. And Jenga here is, I've mentioned it before, I'll probably keep saying it, the most popular game in our room because <laughs> yes. we always have it out. And people can be sitting there and playing it, and it's a giant Jenga set. And it's a horrible set. It really is. It is. But it is still so popular that it's always being played. And the same thing when you have Jenga on the table for a role-playing game. You've got this visual aspect to sort of hook folks in and go, ooh, I want to play that. And so that's neat. I'm glad to hear that it was successful for you. Yes. It, every time I got it run, it ran great. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, maybe I should try it next time without having the multicolored, brightly colored candy cane looking <laughs> Jenga tower. And it probably would work a little better. But uh, because when I tried to run Dread at Scarab, it didn't it never fired off. Yeah. So much sadness, much sadness. <laughs> well, neat. Did you run anything else of note? No, I basically only ran Dread. You ran Dread. Mm. <laughs> um, my fate games didn't make much sadness. Much said. Whoa. So I uh, got my session submitted late for reasons. And I only ended up being signed up to run a couple of games, one of which was Paranoia. And I had, I didn't even remember which scenario had been accepted. <laughs> and the night before I checked and I looked and I was like, hmm, I should probably do the thing. I should probably prep. And so Chris got to see me prepping for a paranoia session. Now, paranoia is a game that is set in theory in the future. It's a very science fiction setting. The computer 
runs this complex that is there sort of to take care of and protect humanity because something has happened in the outside world, though the computer doesn't allow mention of the outside, so that's treasonous. Um, usually in these games, you are troubleshooters, which means that you hunt down traitors, and traitors are people who are members of secret society, and of course your characters are members of secret societies, and mutants, and your characters are of course mutants, probably, maybe, maybe not. And so that's the world in which you're set in, is this dystopian future, darkly humorous, hilarious, I think. And I had a session where basically I sat down to plan for it, and I was like, my goal when planning for this scenario is to make sure the players did all of the work for me. As that was my stated goal, right? Yes. And so what did you think about how that turned out? Because you actually played in it. I did. Um, even though I knew what was going on, I got to play in it. Um, I think that did work out great. Um, the plot was everyone was looking for a new spot on a late night TV show. Right. Um, so basically it encouraged the players to be as photogenic as possible. Right. You wanted to catch the camera. The whole point was to get ratings. Yes. Uh, so it was a lot of the players trying to do more and more outlandish things um, in order to become the number one TV star. And because they're secret societies, they also had agendas for their secret societies. They were trying to work those into their to yes. their bits, which I, would, I think we had unexpected success <laughs> from that. That was like... That was pure gold. Mining that is that's that's territory I'm going back to. Yes, I think because <laughs> so rarely have I had so much secret society stuff take front stage like that in in a very covert sort of way. Yes. Um, and in fact, I think I'm going to make a deck of cards of secret society missions uh, and put those up on like Drive Through RPG or something so that people can can do that because that would work very well with this kind of scenario it would and also when they when they went to r&d because that's one of the things you do in this game is you you have to go get your gear and then you have to go get your special equipment let's like going to q branch and james bond i made the other players sort of define i was like oh he opens a box chris opens a box what does he see in the box so what was your item um my item was a flashy bright cube right and somebody else had something that was made of leather and had nozzles and squishy and it was squelchy. Yes. You know, and someone else had a bunch of wires and this, that, and then from what it was, they had to utilize those over the course of the course of the game. Yes. Um, and it was fun. It, I think we all had a hilarity. I had folks the next day saying your group was so all engaged in what yeah. you were doing. And which is exciting because there are, times where you see role-playing games and people are looking at their phones or doing other things but maybe it was because they were all excited to play paranoia maybe it was because there was actually you know good table management going on i was making other people be involved at all times or maybe it was just that exciting i don't know i can't tell exactly i'd say it was probably a combination of all three the players there was always a point where a player needed to be or got to be a part of what was going on even if it wasn't their thing right 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 uh, so did you play in anything else? Um, I played in a Star Wars RPG. Um, well, tell us about that. I don't remember the name of that Star Wars RPG. Um, do you remember what? Well, it was the Fantasy Flight Star Wars game. Yes, Fantasy Flight Star Wars. Um, so it had its own special dice, its own special mechanic for how you rolled. Um, 
which GM did a pretty good job of explaining that uh, you basically have good dice, bad dice. They have good things on them, and the bad dice have bad things on them. If you roll more good, good things happen. If you roll more bad, bad things happen. Um, so was that on the dice or on the sides of the dice? Or can even the bad bad dice give you good things but just less frequently? Uh, no, the bad dice are bad. They are just bad. There is bad, and then there's worse. Um, <laughs> okay. And then the good dice are the same in the opposite way. Um and the game we got to play in, the guy was running uh, five or six scenarios in a row at the con. Um, the idea was it was kind of a connected story, but uh, the players kept getting to grab the previous player's stuff to play it as they upgraded. And everyone was a Jedi, and the idea was, uh, in our story specifically, that we were trying to get the crystals for our lightsabers. Unfortunately, they were highly, highly illegal. So we had to basically assault a planet to get three crystals. Hmm. Neat. I liked your plan. It, uh, yes, it was an entertaining plan. Um, I, okay, so one of the things that Chris has started doing now is whenever there's a role-playing game or he's in a session, he will write out what he thinks the plan is going to be for his character yes. to do. And that, I think, has turned into... Well, it's going to turn into an on RPGs episode here shortly. And yes. uh, so you might want to go listen to it. But basically, it's so like, here's what you think is going to happen. And then you keep adding or adjusting it as things change. And it adds a bit. It it keeps you from feeling, hey, nothing has happened during a session. Yes. If nothing else. It, it's like, oh, um, these are the things that have caused me to change my mind. It's. I think it's a great thing to show someone after a game because uh, it really shows how the game kind of flowed through easily. A uh, good example would be, you know, your plan is uh, step one, get in the car. Step two, drive down to work. Step three, um, profit. Profit. And then uh, you throw in a little asterisk there. Uh, step 1.5, get food. Um, step, uh, you know, and then uh, food gets crossed out for McDonald's and then that gets crossed out for uh, Chick-fil-A. Um, and so as the story continues, you keep crossing out different things and modifying your plan by the time you're done, it's this ridiculous series of notes that kind of tells its own story. And players frequently get lost when doing role-playing games, so having that will keep them sort of on task, I think. And uh, anyway, I like it, but like I said, we'll probably do a, a bigger thing more in-depth for on RPGs because that's a player tip that I just cannot cannot <laughs> recommend enough. Um. So, but anyway, so you had fun with the Star Wars game. It sounds like it's fairly complex because you have to have unique dice. Um, so you can't just pick up any set of polyhedrals. Um, um, and then you have to be able to interpret all the symbols. Yes. If you have someone who knows how to run the game very well, uh, it can run smoothly. But there is quite a bit of crunchiness to that particular system. Um, every character sheet, I'm going to say sheet. Uh, was about seven or eight pages long. Whoa! So you didn't need all that information. Um, a lot of that was for creation. But there was like one or two things you needed from every page. So there's a lot of mechanics, um, though you don't always use all of them. Right. Well, neat. Um, but you are you interested in playing that system again, or is it just a done thing? Um, it's something I might try again in the future, though getting the dice may be a limiting factor. Understood. So uh, one of the things that I played was in a City of Mist demo. And in City of Mist, the characters are... They're basically two parts to the character. 
One is, hey, you are a person and this is your thing. Uh, the other is that you are also a myth. And for my character, it was Excalibur and there was somebody else who was the assassin and there was a variety of things. So here there was the hacker and I don't remember what their actual tropes were. One of them was the Fox spirit Kitsune or whatever it is. <laughs> um, and the whole premise is, is that you can call on your, your spiritual side and do the spiritual, do your mythic things. But if you do that too much, your character may be consumed by the myth, which at the right time during the scenario can be glorious <laughs> as you are sort of, you know, devoured by your myth and you become like the living embodiment of murder or of truth and justice or what, what have you. You know, it's like you, you get to do the, the one action and you get to do it very well, but then you're sort of removed from the game. But on the other hand, you could sort of get the, uh, um, the opposite effect where you're playing it so cautious and you're being so mundane with your action that you could Mr. Mom it out where it's like, Oh, all of a sudden I'm now stay at home dad with my, with my parcel of kids and I am no longer going out on adventures. And so you have pulled yourself out of the pool. Now we didn't really get to see those big mechanisms up front, but the kit that the guy brought to the table, which you can get through Amazon or something. And I'm going to go order it now because I forgot to order it right after the con. Um, it comes with character sheets that are um, 11 by 17 and they're folded in half to look like eight and a half by 11. And then you open them up and they are big and beautiful and, Oh, just, just very, very well presented. And it comes with an introductory little book that here's how you play the game and do, do the things. And it sort of plays like a cross between two of our favorite games, which is Dungeon World, which is one that I love to run, and actually Apocalypse Engine more closely, and Fate Accelerated, where you have aspects that keep getting thrown on to, uh, to scenes to, oh, this is why you're better at that, or here's the effect that the rain is having, and those, those kinds of stuff. So I look forward to exploring more with City of Mist because, wow, that was that was pretty interesting. We also did one other big, big event. We played in the Pharaoh's Challenge. Yes, the Pharaoh's Challenge. This we, is the, the second edition of the Scarab Pharaoh's Challenge. Yes, Donald got to be a judge and I got to be an involved player. Right. And so uh, all the players were basically judging the GMs, right? But there were specific designated official judges. And since I won it last year at the event, they said, well, you can't play in it again. You get to be a judge instead. I'm like, well, all right. That's certainly a lot less stressful. <laughs> um, and the the game that they were suggesting was... Right. So it was... Uh, yeah, it was, it was one of the era games... And this was era silence. It, um, it's a system that uses a bunch of D10s. The idea is you roll a number based on your abilities, maybe four or five. Um, every die that rolls seven or higher is a success. And the whole premise was, in this case, they had four songs that they had to work, the GMs had to work into their games. Um, they also had a map and some challenges that were included, though they were allowed to make up their own challenges as well. And none of the players could talk in character to each other Correct. or communicate in character information, except for by hand gestures or, or whatnot. It's like, here's yes. what my character is doing, not here's what I'm saying. And honestly, I never could have won the event with this particular system because about half of my role-playing stuff is all voices yes. <laughs> and, you know, a character interaction in that fashion. So, yeah, uh, they very, they really took the system and kind of made it 
a lot about the mechanics or the puzzles um, of the game and less about the characters interacting with each other, per se. Right. So it was pretty rough. The GMs had a lot to do. So basically that morning, the Saturday morning, they got the system. And then they had an hour to prep for the scenario uh, as it happened. Um, And our GM was a bit of a LARPer before she started running. And I think that that probably hurt her a bit because once again, you know, you couldn't use your your character interactions in the same sort of way. Uh, And unfortunately, ours, our GM did not win. But, uh, you know, she gave it a valiant effort and it was, it was neat to see how it played out. And it was certainly, what do you think now having won one, Chris, cause you went, ran the Sushcon one and won it. Yes. And then having to be the judge. What do you think? Um, uh, it's definitely a different feeling being on the playing side than the running side. Um, I uh, will agree with the statement you said before. If I had to have run that particular scenario, I would have flopped hard. Um, I'm uh, very much about the characters messing with each other or the story. Um, and that scenario really did not lend itself well to the players breaking things. The, the setting, yeah, yeah. The setting. I mean, now you can always do stuff with the scenario. You can play with it quite a bit. Yes. And so if if that was what a GM needed and they took the time to, to reflect for a moment, they probably could have come up with some ways to do it. Yes, though when you only have an hour... Um, Panic ensues. Yes. <laughs> becomes so, a bit more difficult. Um, but anyway, I cannot wait to see because we're going to have another uh, Pharaoh's Challenge here at Shushcon. I don't know yes. what John has planned for that, but we're going to, you know, laser cut up or, uh, you know, 3D print some stuff for the folks who are competing and participating in that. Yes. And it should all be very exciting. I cannot wait to see what happens. Hopefully. Hopefully. All right. Well, so one last thing we did at ScarabCon, um, we were not the only ones running escape rooms. Um, there was one other escape room at the con called the Witch's Pantry. It was a clever game made by one of the... Um, yeah, one of the Scarab regulars. I think she may be on the board, the Scarab board. I was going to say board, but I wasn't sure if she is. And apparently this was the first escape room she'd made for something like this. Right. Not sure if it's the first ever, but it was the first she'd run at a con like this, at least. So let's, let's talk about a couple of the really good things about the Witch's Pantry. What was the first thing that you thought when you sort of walked into the area? Um, that's a lot of set dressing. Um, yeah. She, she accoutred her whole space like it was part of an escape room. And that honestly was, I think, the most impressive thing about it was so much effort was put into to making it feel like a room as opposed to an, a tabletop escape experience. Yes. Um, I mean, there were props everywhere. Uh, she had dressers, she had tables, she had bookshelves filled with just various bottles and things that all, um, in one form or another, related to the game itself. Um, it, it, did the, it did feel like there was an inordinate amount of red herring parts um i would say noise there was a lot of noise added to the game that that is true um which made some of the puzzles quite a bit more difficult than i think they set out to be Mm -hmm. however the puzzles themselves for the most part were quite neat though finding the puzzles was kind of difficult yeah it it felt like it almost felt uh, not like not like she was playing unfair when she was doing the design but 
that that it was done not with the eye of getting people from the beginning to the end, right? It's true. It, it was. It was. It, it felt like, hey, this is a great. As a, okay, for a first escape room, it's pretty amazing. Oh All yeah. Right? Let's just say that right up front. Absolutely. Anything else we talk about it is is little little details that that maybe could be an issue. Um, um, and it, probably mostly mistakes that we've made ourselves and have learned from. Yes. The difference is is that none of our rooms were as as heavily propped out as hers. So that's true. When we found out something was wrong, it would be easier <laughs> for yes. us to fix them. Um, she did a neat thing with uh, with candy where uh, you had it was a big bowl full of candy and you pull out all the pieces of the candy and there are letters on them and you have to sort them by color and then each color you can make a word out of it. And even that was a little complex because the same word was in the bowl three times yes. and she put them all on that same color. And so I was like, what is this word? This doesn't I'm like, oh, OK, I get it. And yes. I felt so smart when I figured it out. And when you figured out the answers to one of her problems, you did feel smart. But on the other hand, there weren't a lot of self-validating answers like that. I think that's one of the that's things that, that rooms need is you've got the right answer. You know you've got the right answer. Or you've got the wrong answer. You know you've got the wrong answer. And that was not something that we encountered yes. in that room. There was quite a few times where we ended up in that situation. We thought, is this what we're looking for? Um, it's, the puzzles themselves were neat. Um Though one of the puzzles that I thought was difficult, and again, this has a problem with noise, um, there was a puzzle box in the room. It wasn't immediately obvious that the puzzle box had anything to do with the room until you opened it. I think that was a major difficulty there. Well, I think that part didn't get me. It was the the one that was written in Braille and there was no Braille code. Yes. Or at least I didn't. I never found one. Yes. Um, that uh, was... If you knew Braille, apparently all the answers were on that. Uh, if you didn't know Braille, you basically had to Decipher. reverse engineer it, and uh, that was quite difficult. Yeah, I, I, it was it was a bit muddy in the middle. Um, the The thing I disliked the most about it was that you could lose time in the room. Yes. It's like you've done this thing, and it's an obvious thing that you would try and do, and it woke up the bad guy, and... It, it took off 15 minutes worth of time. Which I think that is an easy problem to solve with just a little, you open up, you see the bad guy and there's a note on him or something that says, you know, one of two ways to solve this problem or whatever in some fancy way. Um, and it basically that would tell you there's two solutions. Try your hand. If you fail, there's 15 minutes off. Just a warning. And uh, I think that puzzle would have fit just fine. Yeah, or there, there are ways to do that. Absolutely, yes. I, you know. In all, uh, I think I've said all the good stuff that I can. Is the is the you know for a first room pretty darn amazing, but I don't know. Um, it it's the kind of thing that makes me go. I can't wait to see her second or third room. Yes, but I want her to approach those rooms with the idea that she wants people to complete the room because mm -hmm. it really felt like she she wanted the. She wanted a high toughness quotient and didn't want very many people to complete the room. Yes. Um, um, and there are ways to run rooms like that, though. I think when you're starting out, you need to approach it from the opposite direction, specifically so that you can learn where the pitfalls are. Yeah. But in all, I think the Witch's Pantry is a great example or was a great example of them trying to. Because previously, last year, Stephanie took three or four of our rooms there and ran them. And they're like, hey, we're going to take that idea and we're going to do more with it. And so yeah. that's, I think, the kind of stuff you can look forward to at Scarab. 
Yes. So nice. You know, I'm sure it took her an hour and a half, two hours to get her room put away or thrown away after the con. There was so much to that room. It looked neat. That is, um, it was an amazing looking room. That is absolutely. Especially for a convention made for convention experience. Yes. So the problem was a lot of the props were fragile. Apparently she'd had stuff broken. Um, She had people eating the candy. Um, Um, Which again goes back to some of our rules. Be careful if you add food, someone will try to eat it and be careful with breakable stuff. Someone will break it. It will happen. So, um, but that's it. Uh, if you're interested in Scarab, you know, check out the links in the show notes and you can check out and you can possibly go next year. And if so, you'll get to play some games with me there because at Shoshkan, honestly, if you play a game with me, it's nearly a miracle because of all the other stuff I'm doing. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think we need to wrap up because it's about time for the kids to storm the gates here at the Polly's Island Library. I'm Donald Dennis. I'm Chris Bell. And you've been listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as On Board Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. Games in Schools and Libraries podcast is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System. You can come and play games with me at the Waccamonic Branch Library in Georgetown County, South Carolina, in Polly's Island. 